you can have all the Explorations Early Learning Upstairs Studio podcast with our new app. Just search your app store, uh, Apple, Android, Kindle, we don't care what you use. Search the app store for Explorations Early Learning, download the app, give it a try. Cue the accordion. I've always wanted to say that. Kick back and get comfy while hosts Heather Wenig and her co-hosts from the Early Childhood Nerd Collective explore ways to cause and effect. Dig that funky accordion. Hello, welcome to Cause and Effect. This is Heather Winnig. I'm that early childhood nerd. And joining me today is Josie Winnig, who is that early childhood nerdling. The child. I just, the child. Of the nerd. The child of the nerd. But not early. No. You're very late now. <laughs> You're old. Um, so hi, Josie. What, what do you want people to know Hello. about you? Um, well, I'm not a child. Right. Establish that. Right. Um, I'm very uh, knowledgeable about this topic. <laughs> More knowledgeable than you, perhaps. Even. <laughs> no. I'm sorry. I'm nervous. <laughs> oh, that was funny. Keep going. Um, I'm Josie. I go to Indiana University, aspiring social worker. Um, mm-hmm. I don't exactly work in early childhood education, but I do. Um, work with children and want to continue working with children in a social work capacity. Um, should I talk about what I do? If you'd like to. Will that lends me credibility? Yeah. Um, I work Give for, us a reason to believe you. <laughs> um, I work for CASA, which is a nonprofit organization that does legal advocacy for abused and neglected children. Um, I also volunteer in a child care center. Um, that operates from a domestic violence shelter in Bloomington. So those are the capacities that I I do work in. And you've done some work in a summer camp. Oh, yeah. School-age kids. Yeah, don't forget that part. Terrible summer camp. (laughs) (laughs) Summer camps are sad for everyone, I think, most of the time. Okay, so Josie is joining me today to talk about a quote that fits into our theme of the image of the child. So we have three total podcast episodes on this idea of the image of the child and how we see them, how that affects our work. So I'm going to read the quote first. You ready, Joe? I'm ready. Okay. So the quote is, in Reggio, the child is viewed as strong, powerful, rich in potential, driven by the power of wanting to grow, nurtured by adults who take this drive toward growth seriously. Um, And I, I didn't write the author's name down, but it's from the book, working in the Reggio way. Um, So anyway, so we're not specifically talking about Reggio Emilia, um, but it's, you know, it's it's a city in Italy. They have schools that are very famous, um, very well respected for the way that they provide um, education for young children. And one of the, the basis, one of the foundations of the schools is that they see the child in a very positive way. And um, and I think that's one of the reasons it's hard for us to say in the states that we do Reggio, um, because culturally our ideas about children are much different, and it's a really hard shift to make, even for people who have lots of training and good intentions. So um, so that's what we're going to talk about. 
Um, and Josie chose this quote herself. I did. So do you want to say why you chose it before we start talking about it? Like, what was it about this quote that grabbed you? Well, first of all, I want to apologize to all of the actual early childhood professionals that you work with that I stole this quote from. You might actually <laughs> know something about this. But, no, I mean, I liked, I liked the quote because I read it, and I was like, yes. And it is so different than how we think of children. And just um, the child is viewed as strong, powerful, rich in potential. I love that because it reminded me so much of how we talk about um, working with people in social work and the way that we think of, that we try to think about children, at least in uh, CASA work. It's very, we try to be very strength-based um, and not view the people and the children as powerless, even though that's how we are tempted to view them and that's how we often treat them. Mm -hmm. So I love it's a quote. Yeah, it's a hard shift because there's a lot of unlearning that has to happen before we can sort of learn how to take that strength-based approach. So um, this is out of the blue. So if you don't have an answer that jumps right to you, don't worry about that. We'll move on. But I wondered if you had any memories of being treated as less than powerful or not um, not nurtured or the adults didn't take your drive toward growth seriously without mentioning any real names. Hmm. Heather Wenig. <laughs> yeah, my mom. <laughs> my, my horrible mother. No. Um, that's, a, that's a... You can say it if it's true. No. I think, I mean, I think in, when I was growing up, I grew up feeling very powerful and capable and just running around in the creeks, in the cornfields, <laughs> literally. Um, so I feel like, you know, being able to run around and do my own things and make my decisions about what I wanted to do made me, I mean, I look back and I feel like I had a very, a, a very, um, what's the word I'm looking for, empowered childhood in some ways. But then I think... Um, there were definitely other interactions as a child that where I wasn't treated that way. Um, the first one that comes to mind was, do you remember when I was a child? And I won't. <laughs> first, do you remember that? No. Um, I have photographs. I won't name names, but the cer okay. my certain friend's mom, who was always telling me that I couldn't read Harry Potter, basically anything I wanted to read. She said that I could not read that and that I was not smart enough to understand that. Mm -hmm. And it is just, it's a, it was a horrible feeling. It was like embarrassing and disempowering. I remember that. Yeah. But because you stomped in the house <laughs> and read the book in like two days. Yeah. <laughs> like, so, yeah. It did, so and so suck it. It did not disempower me as much as she was trying to. <laughs> that was too spiteful. Yeah, yeah. Well, and that's the example that came to mind for me, not that specific one, but I remember you having more than one experience where, like, you wanted to check something out from the library, and they'd say, no, you're not at that level yet. Mm. Like, um, but I want to read the book. <laughs> and if you don't think I'm at that level, maybe reading the book gets me to that, that uh, level. A lot of gatekeeping so about reading. Yes. What's up with that? I don't know. Gatekeeping is a good word for this, though. Good one. Is that a social worker word? Um, I, 
not is it just a, a social justice word yeah it's a social yeah. justice word yeah um it's a really good really good image to think about gatekeeping um so um so i know you also mentioned when when we talked about you wanting to do this quote just stuff about the strength-based approach that you had been trained in stop making faces at me. <laughs> Um, are you okay to tell, tell everybody a little bit more about what kinds of things you've, that strength-based training entails? Yeah. Um, the strength-based approach in social work, um, there's a number of assumptions that you're supposed to make where, like you were talking about, about unlearning. They're not the assumptions you would make probably right off the bat, um, but you have to learn to make these new assumptions. Like um, you assume that the, the children, I'm just going to use children in this context because that's what I yeah. care about. Um, yeah, that's what the podcast is about. Yeah. Other people <laughs> might say clients, but I'm not. No. Oh, perfect. I'm Thank not you for say not that. That's fine. weird. Yeah. But you assume that children have not just a strength, but many strengths and that they have knowledge of those strengths and that you, you're more um, – just trying to help them use those strengths and navigate systems with the strengths they already have. I've said strengths like 800 times. Um, it's pretty key to this discussion. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so you're just trying to empower them to make their own decisions, and um, self-determination is also a huge part of that. Mm. Um, Tiffany would be so excited. I wish she was here to talk self-determination with us. We can have a three. We'll have to do a three-person Skype. Yeah. Let's say three-person. <laughs> with Tiffany about self-determination. Okay, anyway, sorry I interrupted you. And um, I think in social work and social services, the strengths-based perspective is it's a different paradigm because even though you're helping someone, I use air quotes there, for the listeners. Too bad this isn't a video. But, right. <laughs> um, Everybody picture air quotes. Even though you're helping someone and you're helping them navigate certain systems, you can't view them as powerless. Um, oh, I lost my train of thought. Um, <laughs> well, <laughs> I mean, when you view them as powerless, that, that impacts how you treat them, how you interact, what kinds of things you trust them with. Yeah. And I think that translates to anybody's work with children, whether you're a parent or a child care provider or a teacher or a social worker. If you, if you go in assuming that there's something missing, there's a deficit that you need to fill. For one thing, I think that throws the power off because you're going in as the savior kind of, mm -hmm. and the savior can only be the most powerful. <laughs> That's just kind of implied in, it's in the job description of being a savior. Yeah. That you're the most powerful. And when you're the savior, um, that you're not, you never get to a point where you even out that power dynamic. Right. Because you've started that way and that's just mm -hmm. the way you're going to continue. Um, and it could, I think so many, um, so I've mentioned, I think I mentioned this in at least one of the other episodes about the image of the child, but I spent some time in a bookstore a couple weeks ago in the parenting section and reading the titles of the books was horrifying. It was such a repeated and clear message that children are less than and that the adults have a responsibility to fix them. And I just think, what good can come from that mindset? None. 
None. None good. The way people who talk about children, the way people who have children and work with children talk about children, you would think that they hate them and yeah. want them to stop existing. Right. <laughs> yeah, I think a lot of times conversation re- revolves solely around convenience. Mm-hmm. You know, like if they would just do this and this and this, my life would be easier and um, but then we've we've sort of learned to be kinder about it, and so we try to say things like, "Well, I just am trying to help him develop some self discipline, or I want to help him make better choices." And um, in early childhood, especially, we talk about good choices and bad choices, and um, and we put it all on the kid, and we we're saying, "I know I'm the grown up, and I know you've got, you know, maybe 40 months of experience on the earth." But I expect you to act like me. I expect you. I'm going to measure you by how adult you are. Mm-hmm. And that drives me bonkers. How compliant you are. Mm-hmm. Yes, compliance is big. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so I loved the very last part of this quote. Um, this the <laughs> image. Josie's doing funny things. <laughs> Making me laugh. The, the image of adults who take this drive toward growth seriously. For one thing, how sad is it that that's something we have to specify and look for and that that's not just all of us? Like, that's that's really, that hurts my heart a little bit, that that's not just the natural. Like the bookshelf at the parenting section isn't full of taking your child's drive toward growth seriously. <laughs> <laughs> Ways to help them drive toward growth. Um, but But it is rare. And and I don't know that, so you may see more like in your social work context, you might see more, um, I guess, the opposite of what I'm going to say. But I don't think it's because they set out, the adults don't set out to think about children that way or to develop this power imbalance or um, they're probably not even aware that this is a bias they have, most of us. Um so I don't know. And I think even in really extreme situations like abuse and neglect, it comes down to skill and and resources a lot of times. And yeah. it's not so much their intent to do things that are harmful. Um, but I think just, just starting to think and change the way we think about things is a big step. And, and modeling that for other people. So you're not going to say to another adult, seems like you really have some bias against that child. <laughs> The way you're talking really sounds like you don't trust them. But we could say things, you know, sort of think out loud around them to model our thought processes. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. That was a lot of words that didn't really seem to go anywhere. (laughs) But you're nodding. So, okay. You talk now. Okay. (laughs) Um, I think that taking things seriously, taking children seriously, and doing things intentionally is always super hard, Um, especially when it feels like you're always short of time and always short of resources. Um, I don't think educators or social workers ever, you know, they, they, I think they do things that they would be embarrassed of if they really thought about it or if they saw the scene played back later. Um, But it just seems like, to me, it seems, like when things are strapped and you have to do something, you fall back into those cultural 
things. Um, yeah. Those cultural norms of, you know, everyone just needs to sit down and be quiet so I can get through this day. Right. And yeah. And just do what I say when I say it. Yeah. And that, that proves our, our relationship, you know, that proves my parenting. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I know parents and teachers, they feel a lot of pressure from people who are looking in from the outside, especially with behavior kinds of things. Um, So do you, and I honestly, I don't have any idea what this answer is going to be. When you guys work with, with parents um, at CASA, um, do you do you talk much about developing new rituals, new routines to break out of old ways of doing things? Do you know what I mean? Because mm-hmm. I cause I think that's like anytime you're trying to make a change, really thinking through what can I change about my day that will trigger some other changes might be a good good thing to do. Yeah, I mean, um, I think definitely when there's a case and you're working with the parents, there's always, like, parenting classes get mm-hmm. recommended. And that I'm kind of cynical about that because I feel like they don't actually change the way they view their children. And mm-hmm. um, the things people say about their children, it always just comes back to, like, oh, I'm controlling things better now. Oh, yeah. Um, That's still the measure. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, I mean, I've thought about that before because when I was going through CASA training, and I think CASA is an amazing program. Yeah, um, I do too. I love it. I would die for (laughs) CASA. But um, when I was going through the CASA program, um, we do like one training where we talk about child development, like birth to 18, Uh the whole span of development and what children need and what we can do for them in like two hours. And the whole time I was just like, I wish my mom was here because (laughs) she would have some critical intervention here about how we think about children. Um, Because it's very, I I mean, this is kind of just um, an aspect of the kind of work you're doing, but it's very reactive and it's very like, you know, we just need to make sure things meet this minimum standard of safety for the child. And I'm always there thinking like, oh, but things could be so much better. Yeah. You know, we could. And I sort of get that, but I don't think we stop at that minimum. I don't think we should stop at that minimum. Yeah. You know what I mean? If And I'm talking, you're in a very different context than I am. I'm I'm thinking about this mostly in terms of how early childhood teachers have their classrooms set up and what materials do you put out and um, what are your behavior expectations and stuff. But I think that's really that idea of trying to stick child development from birth to 18 into a two-hour training is an important thing to think about because I I never give, you know, I love books. Um, I don't know if you know that about me. I, do. I love books. I can yeah. see your bookshelf. <laughs> Yeah, that's that's just some of my many books. Um, but anyway, I, I never give like parenting books to parents. To, to new, I, I never say, oh, I highly recommend this parenting book, except Unconditional Parenting by Alfie Cohn. That's the exception. Um, because parenting books, the, the, as I've said, the focus really is getting control. And you said that too. That's still what it kind of comes back to. But if we spent more time thinking about child development, and trying to help 
because even teachers in early childhood classrooms don't have a lot of that specific training sometimes, mm-hmm. um, depending on your state, depending on your regulations. It could just be anyone who wants to could be working with kids. But when you actually understand the developmental levels and the needs that they have at those levels and their drive toward growth, that because that's there, they want to learn things, they want to do things, then we would feel and be so much more effective than when we're reading parenting and getting parenting training and then thinking still in terms of us versus them. And and I think there's very few places, very few positive directions you can go with an us versus them. Mm-hmm. I agree. And it drives me crazy. <laughs> in fact, Alfie Cohn has an article and it's free on his website, alfiecohn.org. <laughs> um about how to write a parenting book, how to write a successful parenting book, and it's very satirical. You know, but it's, but that's what he's talking about. Is, you know, throw in some catchphrases, throw in some uh, things to scare people about what will happen if they don't get control of their kids, mm-hmm. and, and it's it all comes from a place of just not not trusting children, and we don't trust them because we don't understand them. So understanding them is the key. Hmm. Now what? That was a rant. Mom? <laughs> it was. Um, thinking. But I hear you love it when I rant. I do. <laughs> but I'm biased. Mm. Um, I'm trying to think. Do you think that this, um, you know, seeing children as something that needs to be controlled? Mm-hmm. Um, do you think that comes primarily from a place of distrust or from viewing children as weak or fragile? Hmm. Like what is it that's keeping us think, from seeing children as strong? I think fragility is a piece of it because we're so protective um, and we feel like danger is lurking around every corner um, and that the you know society is so much more dangerous now when the reality is that it's not really. Mm-hmm. I think I actually, and I, I shouldn't say this because I don't have the source right at my fingertips, but I read this week somewhere that we're safer now, actually, than, um, you know, 20, 30 years ago. So I think that's part of it. Um, but I also just think that we, as a culture, have this idea that children should be subservient and that if we cannot uh, control them, then that's a failure on our part. Um Instead of, you know, if we if we if they're not doing what we want, doing a little critical thinking about it. So why is what I want a reasonable thing to want from this child? <laughs> and and is there something he needs from me to be able to do those things that I need him to do? And how can I teach him or help him or help her develop those things? Um, I, I think culture is a big piece of it. Um, poor little children. (laughs) (laughs) Those poor little, those poor little children. Yeah. (laughs) But I, and I said this in another episode, but I, I'm not too worried about repeating myself because, um, that's continuity. That's how we learn. Um, one of the, one of the first things we can do if we want, because I always try to bring the podcast back to, so if we want to make a change or a shift, how can we do it? 
um, if something has, you know, hit a, struck a chord while they listen. Um, but I think one of the most important things you can do is just start to be more aware about how you talk about children um, or when you see a certain child, what is your physical reaction or what do you think? Um, and maybe do a little tracking. And you might find that you do have a, a good trust and that you do take their drive to grow seriously. Or you may find with this child, I have a pretty good trust, but with this one, I still really struggle and I assume negative about her um, when this one over here is doing the same things and it's not even getting my attention. <laughs> so just just practicing awareness is a big thing, and I don't think that's something that comes naturally to everybody. So it's, it's practice is key anytime you're learning a new skill. It doesn't come overnight. That just made me think, and maybe this is, I mean, this is a whole nother can of worms. But I, I think also a lot of trusting children and seeing them as little people, mm-hmm. um, you also have to interrogate um, your how you view people in general and how oh, yeah. um, systems of oppression and judgment and stereotyping affect that. Like, I think mm-hmm. so many people um, can view like a little white girl as, um, you know, they see the Mm -hmm. whole child. Right. They see someone who has potential and strength and interests, but then Mm -hmm. they see a little black girl and, you know, their, their whole physicality and the whole way they treat that child is so different. Mm -hmm. I'm stating the obvious here, but. Yeah. Well, I don't (laughs) think that's the obvious for everybody. I really don't. Um, you know, there's lots of information coming out right now and um, lots of information about expulsion rates in preschool and kids getting kicked out of child care programs. And it's disproportionately high numbers of non-white boys. Mm-hmm. Um, and And I think it's because not all of us are aware of those um, implicit bias is that the word I want to is that the yeah. phrase I'm looking for here um, that we just you know a, a little girl can do something that we think is funny or that we understand is just oh you know she's just little whatever but um, you know one of these other boys does the same thing and just because of our own uh, unexamined thoughts and assumptions we interpret it differently um, and you can't fix that until you become aware and admit that there are some of those sub- unconscious thoughts going on mm-hmm. in the process, which is hard. I think also yeah. in social work, people, I could see how people might have a tendency to, if they're working with children, knowing what we know about adverse childhood experiences and how they contribute to how that's a risk factor for other mm-hmm. um, life experiences later, they might have a tendency to view um, children as like, um, as a, they might view the child more as a risk factor than as the child mm-hmm. that they are. Than as a human being. And they yeah. just see what they think will happen later or what they assume their life outcomes will be. Yeah. Or view that child as damaged or, um, you know, knows too much for their age. I hear that all the yeah. time. Like, this oh, yeah. knows way more than they should know at that age. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it, it betrays that own person's upbringing and what they think, what their cultural norms are. Mm-hmm. 
more than I think it says anything about that child or what they should or shouldn't know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, um, you know, we just, all of us, and this could be anybody, anybody out there who interacts with children at any point, even if it's just in the grocery store. <laughs> um, we all have tremendous power. And I think that that brings with it a tremendous responsibility to work on ourselves and be aware of ourselves. There was something else that, that that reminded me of when you started talking, but now I can't, I don't know. But I mean, that's kind of, that's kind of scary, but, um, oh, you know, I was just going to say, you know, you started talking about seeing the risk and seeing the possible future outcomes. Those are all really good intentions. You know, I mean, that's, that's coming from a good place. Uh, but if left unexamined, we might not get the good results that we want to get. Because we know that for children who are experiencing toxic stress or living in adverse um, uh, situations, having adverse experiences, what, cause, what builds their resilience is positive relationships with adults and trusting relationships with adults and repeated good experiences with adults. Mm-hmm. But if we go into a mindset that this child um, is not strong, is not powerful, is not rich in potential, you know, that's right there in the quote, too, and that's what you're talking about, then um, then we're going to hold some stuff back from them and we're going to focus on fixing. And it's really hard to build relationship in that way. Resilience is a great word for that. It's, it's, it's a buzzword in I'm early childhood. <laughs> I think it's so important to see in any situation to look at, um, but especially if you're working with children with adverse experiences, to see their resiliency and their strengths and what, how, how, what they already do to survive or to function, what their day is like. Um, and that's about getting to know the whole child as mm-hmm. a, as a person, not as, right. um, a thing, a thing, a commodity, yes, an object. <laughs> yeah, an object. that's really hard. Yeah, and that's a big challenge to take this back specifically to an early childhood setting, or even like your summer camp. When you've got children in a group, and you've got specific things you need to get through every day, it's so easy to slip into group mindset, lose sight of the individuals, and to establish things that are actually dehumanizing. Mm-hmm without being an evil person, without going into it saying, I'm going to rip every shred of humanity from these four-year-olds, these two-year-olds. We, we participate in things like that because, uh, because we, we fail to see the humanity. Um, and that's, that's work we need to do on ourselves, too. Whew. I'm preachy. I love it. You're like a prophet. <laughs> Early childhood prophet. Early childhood prophet. I'll have to change my name. Got to rebrand. When you get older and a little crazier, then I'll then be the prophet. prophethood. <laughs> I can't wait. That sounds so fun. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness! So we have we've hit everything that I had that I wanted to try and talk about. Do you have stuff in your my notes? Your brain notes? Your notes that you still want to talk about? I don't, I think we talked about everything. If you want to preach a little bit more, (laughs) go ahead, prophet. (laughs) No, 
I bet I think I've done a lot of that, but okay, so I have one more question for okay, you. I'm ready. And again, I didn't I didn't prepare you for any of these questions, but so are there things as you work with the families you work with or in your training that you've done for the CASA program? Um, do they give like concrete tips for seeing children's strengths or for moving towards a strength based view? Um I didn't prepare for this. Well, that's okay. If you don't know now, we can put them in the comments when the po- when the podcast <laughs> is released, and we can still get that stuff to people. I was just curious because I've talked a lot about mostly self awareness kind of stuff mm-hmm. and um, the things we need to do ourselves. But it, it could be too just looking around at the if you're in a classroom, looking around your classroom. If you're in a home, looking around your home and seeing how it's set up, and is it set up in a way that says you are as welcome here as I am. Mm-hmm. Or is it set up in a way that is you are dependent on me for the things that you need um, and maybe just shifting some of those things around to to try and develop and, and deliver a little bit more trust? I think, the, I mean, in everything that you do, you should make a conscious effort to center the child, mm-hmm. whether you're working in a classroom or working on a, a case for something, mm-hmm. it's very easy to get wrapped up in, you know, the parents' drama or the classroom drama or something, and then the the kids, which are supposed to be central to your job, mm-hmm. is what you're there for, they become kind of shifted to the side and becomes an afterthought. And that's when I think the the more thoughtless practices can happen. Um, yeah. So I think it's just about making an intentional effort to center the kids that you work with and get to know them uh-huh. um, and know them well enough to allow them to speak for themselves while also knowing their needs as mm-hmm. an adult with some power right. in the situation. Yeah. The fact that adults have power is undeniable, yeah. but it's how do we use it and can we share it in some ways? And actually a lot of the things that are inconvenient or hard for us as adults with children can be alleviated a little by just giving them a little power so they don't have to find other ways to look for it and try and grab it. Um, Oh, there was something again. Go ahead. Were you going to say something? Um, Well, I was just thinking about in the Reggio article you sent me, I really Uh loved the parts where it was talking about um, reconfiguring the physical space so things are at the kid's level and Mm -hmm. angling things so it's meant for their eyes not necessarily Um, and one thing I was thinking about it's such a small thing but I it drives me crazy when I'm like in an early childhood classroom and the adults are all like sitting in adult chairs Mm -hmm. I mean I get if you know if you have a physical right you physically can't sit in a child's chair but I think it's important to like get on their level yeah as much as you can yeah, and I love to sit in the chi- in the kids' chairs and talk yeah. to them. <laughs> yeah, know it hurts my butt. Right, I think that's that's so important because um, th- that's one of those unconscious ways that we display a power imbalance. Mm-hmm. Even like when you're reading a book to children and the adults sitting up in a rocking chair and the kids are on carpet squares around you, um, that's hol- that's really holding the information. I mean, that's literally physically holding the information <laughs> away from them. Um, 
and and so just thinking through maybe just thinking through your your day you know how often as I look through my schedule or think about what we did how often could I have given a little bit more balance um, and is there something about the environment like the angling I had totally forgotten about angling it so it's you see it from their level plus I just think we don't realize how much bigger we are than them mm. and even the kindest adult is still twice as big as that child sometimes. And that can be overwhelming regardless of the interaction. So if the interaction is one that's more distrust or um, correcting, we need to be really aware that just that size sometimes can interfere. Yeah. Uh, um, Sorry. I know we're going over your time limit. That's okay. So I'll make this brief, but in my CASA training, we had this really amazing CASA who came and talked about um, her experiences talking to children on, uh, in these cases. And she emphasized a lot, you know, physically getting down there, even if it's uncomfortable, to talk mm-hmm. to them. And a lot of, and just, you know, it's like respecting them like you would any other human. Like uh-huh. if they don't want to show you their bedroom, don't <laughs> your bedroom, you know, if they yeah. don't want to talk about things. Don't press it. Like, you're not uh-huh. entitled to that information or their spaces just because you're the adult. Right. And that's hard. That's hard. Even just a hug. Yeah. Oh, I'll be so sad if you don't give me a hug. Ugh. No, that's that's her body. She can decide whether she wants to give you a hug. Trust her with that decision. Um, but it's. I think it all comes back to that we don't really see them as fully human without putting some effort in and some intention in our side of it. Right. Any last parting shots you've got to get in? No. I'll, All right. I'll stop with my random okay. thoughts. That was awesome. <laughs> well, thank you. Seriously, thank you. I, this has been really good. Great. And someone did a really good job raising you because <laughs> you're so smart. I'm going to have to thank your father when we have supper later. I have a dad. <laughs> He's very involved. <laughs> we'll tell the story another time. It's a good one. Yeah. Josie had to assert herself against someone she thought an interloper was making advances on me at church one night (laughs) (laughs) anyway thank you Josie for joining me today thanks for having me thank you all for listening to another episode of cause and effect This has been an Explorations Early Learning Upstairs Studio production.